Okay, let's pray as we can start. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your goodness to your people. We're thankful, Lord, that we can uh, rest in your character and what you have done to create and to redeem. And uh, Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word, and we pray that you would help us to uh, better understand it and thus to live by it. And as we focus our attention on uh, what you did in creation, we pray that you would uh, grant us insights and understanding uh, that we might uh, honor you in our thinking and thus in our living. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> well, last time we started looking at this topic of the age of the earth. And uh, I think a fitting connection with our discussion about apologetics that Sean led us uh, in. And uh, uh, this is appropriate in our discussions with unbelievers and obviously with uh, other professing believers in terms of what they uh, believe on the age of the earth. And uh, as we began last time, there are three basic questions that we need to answer in regard to this. Certainly there are many other things for us to discuss, but uh, the three basic questions are, um, we have the uh, age of the earth question. And science, of course, uh, purports that the age of the earth is very, very, very old. And yet, um, the scripture suggests differently. And, of course, people have tried to reconcile the two. And then you have also the question of uh, the relation of Genesis 1 to 2 and how this affects the question of the age of the earth. And then, of course, uh, the scripture does point to certain things that suggests a young earth. And so how do we handle those things in light of this purported old age uh, that the earth has? In particular, how do we account for the sun created on the fourth day in light of all of this? So you have certainly other things to address. Uh, but these, I think, are some of the basic uh, questions that we must deal with. Now, as you would expect, there are different ways people respond to this question. And I gave you the five most common uh, that you will see, and uh, some uh, that uh, the church alone holds, some that the church and the world holds, uh, in particular, number five. And um, now there are many others that people have brought up over the years. I'm not going to get into all of those. I don't think it would be fruitful because some of them are just quite ridiculous. Um, and even within these, there are some variations. There are some, uh, if you will, subcategories within these. Uh, but basically, these are the five most common uh, positions that people uh, hold to in regard to this. Now, in regard to the PCA, um, it had unofficially uh, basically held to a young earth position until I believe it was the year 2000, maybe it was 2001, it was right around that time where uh, the question came up again and a position paper was written on it and uh, it was received and accepted. Now, that position paper addressed some of uh, these basic positions, also addressed some of the other positions that people hold to. And uh, the, the vote basically was to accept any of them. And that, you know, whatever you believe is fine as long as you accept the historicity of Adam and that God created. And so 
there is a place for evolutionary thought, a theistic evolutionary thought within the church. And PCA even accepted that. And um, uh, this led to uh, a lot of upset by certain people. The point was raised even this last summer in regard to the insider movement. The comment was made that uh, I, I basically I was extremely upset on the vote on regard to creation, but I decided to stay in the PCA. But if this insider movement minority report passes, I'm going to leave. And uh, I was one of those people who was very upset by the vote. I signed uh, my name on a list of people who objected to it. And uh, there was a rather substantial line uh, when that took place. So um, just want to uh, mention briefly where the PCA has come to, to stand on this. Um, I would have been happier if they would have addressed some of the major positions and said, okay, if you believe one of the top four, uh, you're fine, as long as you believe in the historicity of Adam and so forth. I would have been happier with that. I still would have signed my name. <laughs> but uh, the fact that they accepted anything, uh, really, uh, except for outright atheistic evolution, um, I just thought that was extremely strange. Um, but the argument simply was, well, if we only accept a young earth or something like that, then there would be uh, people like Benjamin Warfield and Charles Hodge and so forth who couldn't be in the PCA. And we can't let that happen. And so that's basically how the argument went. Um, i never forget it. It was in Dallas that year. Um, so anyway, now I also wanted to uh, say here briefly a little bit about my journey uh, to my conclusions I, uh, uh, in certain ways, um, except for the gap theory, may have touched on every one of those in my own thinking. I, I never disbelieved that God created. I always have believed that. But growing up, going to a public school, of course, was exposed to evolution. And so uh, I don't remember thinking through it all that deliberately, but I never, ever remember thinking anything other than, well, maybe God used evolution to create things. And so a so-called theistic evolution. And so I never denied God as creator in any way, uh, but thought, well, maybe God used an old earth and used even evolution to accomplish it. But as I uh, grew in my faith and my studies of the scriptures, uh, I realized that th that just doesn't make any sense. And um, especially when I was in Atlanta at music school, um, and the Lord used that time in my life uh, to really uh, grow me in innumerable ways. But one of the things had to do here with this issue. And uh, extremely fascinating to me, so I started uh, reading about it and learning more about it and so forth. And uh, in God's providence, I encountered uh, Hugh Ross and his teaching. And he was extremely helpful for me to show that any kind of evolutionary approach makes absolutely no sense. Scientifically, it makes no sense. And that was one of his primary points. Certainly, theologically, uh, biblically, it has, uh, there are many things in Scripture that point away from this. And so even a theistic evolutionary system doesn't hold up in, really in any way. And, uh, and so I, I 
basically was holding to his position, and and he is the number three, the day age position, and in this old earth and and so forth. But seeing that God specifically created at every point, uh, not just started it all and left it to go or something to that effect, and um, extremely helpful to me coming from an astrophysicist, so a scientist. Uh, it was um, uh, very compelling to show that scientifically it absolutely makes no sense uh, to believe in evolutionary thought. Um, and uh, and believe that for uh, a little while and then was exposed and confronted uh, with the exegetical approach to Genesis 1. Uh, Hugh Ross is a scientist, not an exegete. And as I was presented with the teachings of the scriptures, I uh, began to realize there's really no other position um, than the young earth position, biblically, and uh, have held to that then since. And, uh, and so I, uh, I do remember um, contemplating the framework hypothesis, thinking, well, maybe there's something to this and so forth. Um, and so uh, just in my own journey, I, other than the gap theory, and again, atheistic evolutionary thought, I, I uh, at least uh, stopped and considered each one of them to some extent. And, um, and so uh, because of that, I think I have some insight into each position and not just coming from one position and setting up straw men and so on and so forth and just blowing them over. Uh, but uh, I want to try to present uh, each position and their uh, good points, you might say. Uh, but then also to try to show why I think the Bible leads us in one direction only. And so, anyway, um, I wanted to say a few words in, in that way uh, as we, uh, before we continue here and as we begin this discussion. All right, well, last time, um, sorry, um, we uh, introduced things and talked about the gap theory and showed you how um, really... There's not much substance to it at all, though it has been a rather common theory in especially the past 150 years, uh, though not as much anymore. Now, the second position that I wanted to address is what we call the framework hypothesis. Now, this was made popular by Meredith Klein, who uh, had taught at uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary up in the Boston area, and uh, um, he has been also very instrumental in our understandings of the covenant, and some of the things that I bring out about the covenant are in large part because of his work. Uh, there's certainly been others, uh, but he has been very influential in that way, and has been in a number of other ways, in particular the two kingdom theologies, an outgrowth of his position, and, uh, and uh, obviously here this framework hypothesis is is something that he has taught very uh, popularly. Uh, other people hold to it. Um, for example, Augustine held to something very similar to this. But Augustine had a different view. He wasn't interested in an old earth. He was interested in a spontaneous creation in the sense that God created everything instantaneously. Okay? And so God spoke and it was all there. Boom, just like that. Everything, all at once, in a matter of milliseconds or something to that effect. And that Genesis 1, and even Genesis 2, 
uh, are a poetic description of what happened. Not that it actually happened that way, but that it is a description of God creating things. And so God did it in this way to help us to understand what he did in a split second. And it also helped to establish the week, and thus the work six days, rest on the seventh day, and, and so forth. And so <clears throat> this is not a unique position uh, in the sense of here in the uh, 19th to 20th century. It has been around for, for many, many centuries, but from a different perspective, uh, from an instantaneous idea and a young earth position, uh, or um, at least we don't know how old the earth is position, uh, to now one that is very much from the position of an old earth. And so um, what we have here then is this poetic framework in Genesis 1. So <clears throat> they believe that Genesis 1 is poetry. It is not narrative. It is not prose. Um, they would not even consider it an exalted or rhythmic kind of prose, but poetry. And so they would say this is a figurative description of the creation, and so we do not need to take the order literally. We do not need to see Genesis 1 speaking to the age of the earth. In fact, they would say it doesn't speak to the age of the earth. And so um, because of that, we can look at general revelation to answer the question of the age of the earth. Now, what um, they do is something like this. There are different frames, and you can think of it in different ways, but you have um, the days of separation, or sometimes called the dwellings. And then you have the days of filling, or sometimes called the dwellers. Okay, so as you look at the six days, you can see this frame, they would say. So, on the first day, what did God separate? Light from darkness. That's right. <clears throat> God said, let there be light, and then separated the light from the darkness. The light he called day, the dark he called night. Okay? Then, on day two, what did he separate? I'm sorry? Um, well, sort of. Um, but what, what language does he use there in Genesis 1? I believe it's verse 5 or 6. Water is above the bottom of the firmament. That's right. Okay. So he separated the waters above and below. And the firmament is in between. Okay. Then on day three, what did he separate? Uh, 
Yeah, he separated the waters below. And of course, he brought the land up in the middle of that. Okay. <clears throat> so here are the days of separation, or if you will, the dwelling places that God first made. Okay, now, what else happened on day three? He didn't just separate the waters below, but he did what? That's right. Yeah, he filled the land with vegetation. Okay, some plants and trees, grass and so forth. Okay. So, notice there is a separation and a filling on this day. Okay, so then, on day four, what did God do? What did he fill? And with what? Go ahead, Eric. You look like you're ready to speak. Okay, and he filled it. What did he fill it? The light and the darkness. Um, sort of, yes. Mm -hmm. And they would definitely make that connection. Where were they put? In the heaven. Okay, yeah, in the firmament, especially. Um, depending on your translation, sometimes they have a different uh, word there. But the firmament was filled with. The sun, moon, and the stars. The luminaries, as it's called. Okay? Then, on day five, what was filled and what did he fill it with? Go ahead, Paul. The water and the firmament were filled with fish and birds. Okay. Waters below, in particular, right? Okay? So, you have the birds and the firmament. And uh, I'll just put fish here, but obviously it's whales and sharks and so forth there too. But uh, he filled the waters below. Then on day six, what did he fill and with what? see some connections. And they would say the light and darkness on day one correspond with the luminaries. Day two corresponds with the birds and the fish. Day three corresponds with the animals and man. Okay, so here are your different frames, they would say. And so God separated and then he filled. Okay. Now, before I continue, do you have any questions on that or comments? I'll certainly respond to this here in a moment, but uh, just presenting it now. Yeah. Why is the gap theory of theory in the framework hypothesis and hypothesis? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. All right. Evolution is a theory too, right? Right. <laughs> but not technically. So uh, I think that's... Um, some uh, sloppy terminology, I suppose. 
Okay? Now, <laughs> the other thing they point to is uh, this. I'll come over here. They point to a pattern of five things for each day. Okay? So, the first thing is... Each day begins with an announcement, they call it. And God said. Okay, so if you look at each of the days, it begins with that, and some of the days have it more than once. And a total of ten, when you include uh, day seven and so forth. And I mentioned that uh, last Sunday uh, with uh, Exodus. Then the second thing that you see in each day is the command. Let there be whatever. Okay? And so let there be light, let there be sun, moon, stars, whatever. Then, thirdly, each day has a report. And it was so something to that effect, depending on your translation. Okay? Then, fourthly, each day has an evaluation. What is that evaluation? Right. And it was good. Okay? Then, fifthly, the terminology here, there is a temporal framework. And that is what? For each day. And there was That's right. There was evening and morning the whatever day. Okay? And so they'll say, look, each day has these five things. Very poetically structured, right? And so you have the uh, frames over here, separation and filling, and then you have the um, uh, arrangement of things in this very specific way. Okay. So the, these are the uh, five patterns that they will uh, address as well. All right, now, let me say a few more things here. Since, uh, um, I made some of these points a little bit already, but since Genesis is Genesis 1 is poetry, the number of days does not matter. So there may be one day of creation, like Augustine believed, or there may be two days of creation, a day of separation, a day of filling. Okay? There may be three days of creation. Days one and four, two and five, three and six. Or, there may be six days of creation. It really doesn't matter, because it's a poetic description. It doesn't um, literally represent what happened, necessarily. Okay? Again, it's just poetry. So they would say. And so it really makes no difference, because Genesis was not intended to 
to be historical and chronological in this way. And so, back to our first question and problem here, how do we account for the millions and billions of years that science has proven? Well, they would say, it doesn't matter. The Bible does not speak to the age of the earth. And so we look to science to tell us, uh, to answer that question. Now, in regard to the second question, how does Genesis 1 relate to Genesis 2? Again, you have a variety of ideas, but generally speaking, the position would say that Genesis 1 is not chronological, but Genesis 2 is. Not sure how that quite fits in with scientific ideas of the Big Bang and so forth, but uh, you often hear that from this position. Um, And then... In regard to the third point here, how do you have um, uh, the sun on day four, but vegetation prior to that, especially with all these uh, millions of years? Uh, They would say, well, look, uh, days one and four fit together. So note this poetic description. The sun must have been created before the vegetation, right? Because science has proven that and so on and so forth. And so uh, this is often how they would... Uh, then respond. Okay, <clears throat> very briefly here, but this is their basic position. Do you have any questions about uh, what they are thinking here? know at least when I went to Grove City College uh, at least one of the professors believed this and taught it so uh, I don't know necessarily where people are today in that way but when I was a student I know I was given this position as the best explanation yes did that Yeah, and that's what I mean. Uh, Certainly you go out beyond that, you have others that would hold to that too, but I know, um, because I, uh, even though I was a business major, I took a lot of religion classes. Um, Yeah. Any other questions? Okay, again, just trying to present it fairly, Here's, here's what they believe. Now, in response to this, and we won't be able to answer everything necessarily here today, but well, maybe we will. Um, I think where we must respond initially is, is Genesis 1 poetry or is it something else? And if we can show that Genesis 1 is not poetry, then I think this position falls apart. Now, I think there are things we can learn from them. The days of separation and filling, that's helpful to see that. It's there. The five pattern, uh, five-fold pattern for each day is, is helpful to see, and, and so forth. Um, so I don't think we necessarily have to dismiss everything they say. However, if we can show that Genesis 1 is not poetry, then I think this position really falls apart and quite easily falls apart. So, um, 
Is this Hebrew poetry? That's the question. Now, you may remember from some of the sermons and Sunday school lessons and so forth I've done before, what is the key element of Hebrew poetry? What is present in Hebrew poetry? Anybody remember that term that I've used before? Starts with a P. That helps you at all. In English, what do we rhyme? What do we rhyme in English? Words. 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 Sounds. Okay. Okay. That's right. Yeah, we're rhyming ideas in Hebrew. Now, you remember the term we give to that? have that in Genesis 1. Now, obviously, you have a certain framework, and you have certain things on each day, but are we rhyming ideas? Does one line say something, and the next line rhyme that idea? Either through contrast, or saying the same thing, or advance the idea. There are different ways you can do parallelism. Do you read Genesis 1, verse 3? And then read verse 4 and see a parallel idea? Of course not. You don't see parallelism there at all. Not even in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. First time we see Hebrew parallelism is in chapter 2, when Adam rejoices over the creation of the woman. Okay? Then... um, uh, you see some elements of it when you get to the uh, covenant promises and so forth to Abraham and so forth uh, there in chapter 12 in particular. Um, you see it to some extent in the, um, uh, the blessing that Jacob gives at the end of Genesis. Uh, but you don't really see Hebrew parallelism in a, in a full way until really Exodus 15 and the song there at the sea. So, the key element of Hebrew poetry is absent here. So, how can we say this is poetic? It just doesn't make any sense. Now, can you say it's highly structured? Absolutely. Can you say that this was extremely carefully thought out and written? Absolutely. That doesn't mean it has to be poetry. Hebrew narrative is very well structured. How many times do I tell you, well, this word is found this many times in this section? (laughs) Or look at the chiasm in this section, or something to that effect. Sometimes they're more carefully crafted than other times. And here is one of those times where it's extremely uh, uh, well done in that way. But there's no Hebrew poetry here. And so just because it's... uh, if you will, artfully arranged doesn't mean it's poetry. And just because it's artfully arranged does not mean 
that historicity and chronology are of no importance. Indeed. If it were poetry, it could still be history. That's right. Like Psalm 105. Absolutely. Absolutely. To back up, it doesn't make any sense to say that just because something's poetry, it has to be fiction. That's right. That's right. And I, and I don't think, to be fair, I don't think they would say it, it's then fiction. It's just not answering the question of chronology. But we all know poems that do answer questions about ah, chronology. Absolutely. Everyone in this room knows multiple poems that are all about chronology. That's right. That's right. Yep. And uh, <clears throat> so, I mean, if we, if we come to this conclusion, I think the rest of the theory falls apart. Now, we can be left with some of the helpful insights. We do see some of these things, and we certainly see this. But even here, does everything match up exactly? When was the firmament made? Was it on day one? Over here, right? Day two. So that doesn't perfectly align. Now, obviously, you have lights and luminaries. Uh, obviously, you have filling here on day three. It doesn't quite fit the frame quite so well. Um, it, you know, you certainly see waters below here, but you also see waters below here. So, um, anyway, uh, it doesn't necessarily follow in every way. And some will acknowledge that and say, well, okay, this is just a general framework. But... Uh, uh, anyway, <clears throat> as you look at Genesis 1, it, it sounds like it's listed chronologically. You have the temporal framework. It certainly sounds that way. And as you look at Genesis 2, this is obviously man-centered in comparison with Genesis 1. Strongly suggesting that Genesis 1 is a broad uh, temporal idea. And uh, Genesis 2 being more focused. So, um, I, I think our response to this is rather simple. Um, that people hold to that position may not like that answer, but uh, I think it is. And, uh, um, and so, we can learn from it, but I, I don't think this is where we need to stay in our thinking in regard to the age of the earth. All right, any final comments or questions here? <clears throat> yes, Dale. Just adding to the lack of the birds, which birds have to be waters above, might have to be eternal, waters above, and why is vegetation in the left column, not the right column? As you say, a number of ways. That's right. That's right. Anybody else?
it just seems like these are the theories rock on his glory, you know. We, we, we reduce him, we, we take away some of his attributes. Um, yeah. um, it doesn't have to, but I think in large measure it does. And I'm going to address some of those points more as we look at the day-age position uh, here beginning next week. All right, well, we better uh, pray here as we conclude. Lord, we are thankful for uh, your word. We are thankful for uh, the helpful insights that the framework hypothesis does give us. Uh, But, Lord, we are uh, also um, thankful that your word is clear. And uh, as we have have seen this position does fall short and uh, we pray that this would our discussion today will help us to better understand uh, what your word does teach us and as we proceed here in our discussions lord we are thankful and praise you that you are our creator you're our maker our only sovereign and may we honor you because of it and uh, we know that your word will uh, not lead us astray Uh, We pray that we would honor what you have given to us in your word, too, uh, especially in regard to uh, this issue. And so, Lord, we pray as we come now to worship you uh, as our creator and our redeemer. We pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit and that you would advance your kingdom here today. In Christ's name, amen.